Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 16. Hear now the word of our God from Psalm 16. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the heart also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. We've seen how the Psalter opens by exploring the theme of refuge. In starting in Psalm 1, we saw the, the picture of the blessed man who, uh, who delights in the law of the Lord, does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 2 had showed us the Davidic king as the son of God, the one who reigns over the nations with a rod of iron, and concludes by saying that all who take refuge in him are blessed. And that theme of refuge kept running through Psalms 3 through 7, exploring different aspects of refuge as the psalmist calls upon the Lord to deliver, to save his people from their enemies. And in Psalm 8, David returned to the theme of the Son of God or the Son of Man, the Davidic King who rules over all things as the second Adam, as a picture of the Messiah to come. And now in Psalms 9 through 18, we're in another season of refuge psalms. Psalm 9 spoke of the Lord as the stronghold for the oppressed who does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And Psalm 10 continued by asking, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Because there are times when it doesn't look like God is going to do anything. It looks like the wicked are oppressing and crushing. And yet... Psalm 11 rejoices that because God is in his holy temple, he will see, he will vindicate the righteous. Psalm 12 warns against the wicked who speak lies and called on the Lord to cut off all flattering lips because the words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 13, like Psalm 10, asked, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? My enemies are winning, my foes are rejoicing, And yet, in the midst of darkness and despair, David does not lose hope. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. There are times when you don't see how this is going to end, but you trust in the Lord, in his covenant faithfulness. Psalm 14 then spoke of the fool who said in his heart, there is no God, the the practical atheist who Oh, it's whether he believes in that God exists or not, he just doesn't think God's ever going to do anything about it. But then Psalm 15 asks, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And David 
answered by speaking of the one who does what is right, which is to describe all of us, but it's especially to describe the king, the the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. I'm going to suggest today that Psalms 14, 15, and 16 are all designed to be read together. Psalm 14 said, there is none who does good. Psalm 15 then said, but those who do good can dwell in God's presence. Go back to Psalm 14. Wait, there's none who does good, but those who do good can dwell in God's presence. How is this supposed to be? Psalm 16. Psalm 16 shows how. Our New Testament lesson comes from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Peter says that David was a prophet, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the Christ. Now, did David understand all this back when he wrote the song? The same Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.21 that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How much did did David understand when he wrote Psalm 16? We don't know. But whether he realized it or not, he was prophesying of the one who was to come. Psalm 16 describes the Son of God in his reliance upon his heavenly Father. This was to be Israel's attitude toward God. It was especially supposed to be the Davidic king's attitude. And it was most emphatically the the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ, that same mind that Paul says is to be ours. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. That we are to have the mind of Christ, the attitude that he had. And so when we sing Psalm 16, we are singing it in him. Just as Israel was taught to sing it in David, so we are learning to sing the Psalms in Christ. And uh, for the theme of refuge, it's right there in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The only way to avoid the outcome of the fool who says there is no God, Psalm 14, is through trusting in the Lord. Indeed, the only way to become the blameless man of Psalm 15 is through trusting in the Lord. David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I I, I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai, you are my master, my my ruler, my, my king. I have no good apart from you. Do you really believe that? I have no good apart from God. When you learn to take refuge in the Lord, what are you doing? Taking refuge in the Lord means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And if you are learning to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, what other good do you have? What other thing are you aiming at, looking for, trying to attain? Of course I have no good apart from you. Anything that gets in the way of my communion with God 
is a problem. And now notice the connection between saying, I have no good apart from you, and then verse 3. So I delight in the holy ones. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Wait, I thought you said I had no good apart from you. But what happens when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength? Well, then you love your neighbor as yourself. That, oh, the people who are made in God's image, they remind me of my God. And because I love my God, therefore I love those made in his image. And then particularly as Jesus taught us to love one another. Well, Jesus was had learned well from Psalm 16. If I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and strength, then I take delight in the saints in the land, the holy ones, the excellent ones, the ones who seek after God. Psalm 1 says, The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord. And now we see Psalm 1 come back around. What does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? Well, it's not just sort of an abstract thing. Oh, yeah, I sit here and read my Bible all the time. I delight in the law of the Lord. Therefore, I delight in his people. I delight in the saints. I delight in the excellent ones because I'm part of this community. We heard in Psalm 15 last week that the man who will dwell in God's tent is the one who despises the vile person but honors those who fear the Lord. Psalm 16 is fleshing this out. I do not delight in the counsel of the ungodly. I do not sit in the seat of the scornful. I delight to share in the communion of saints, the fellowship of God's people. Taking refuge in the Lord also means delighting in the fellowship of his church. Worship and fellowship are intimately bound together. I should have just kept reading in Acts 2 because what was the next verse? It talks about how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What did they do when they were united to Christ by faith? They were united to his people. And so they devoted themselves. They delighted in one another. We were created as worshipers, but worshipers who worship in fellowship with one another. We will either worship the one true God, or we will worship false gods. We were created as communal worshipers, so we will worship communally. Everyone does. The gods of the nations promise all sorts of blessings, but their promised blessings prove to be curses in the end. Think about how organized sports have taken on religious aspects. I mean, yeah, okay, guys, some of us I know need to be careful. Pitchers and catchers report this week. Um, And you know how people's mood swings oftentimes are based on how their team is doing. Well, if, If your mood is swinging based on how your team is doing, that might be a hint that you're finding a little too much of your purpose and meaning and you have a good apart from God. It's not just sports, though. Shopping can also provide a similar sort of worship and fellowship, finding one's identity, power, pleasure, peace, and in having stuff. And in, in, Because why do you sin? I'm not looking for a textbook answer. I'm looking for the practical answer. Why do you sin? What temptations are you most susceptible to? And why do you give in to those temptations? 
it's, it's usually because we expect some blessing. We expect some good to come from this activity, from this thing that we're doing. And for some reason, we're convinced that if we do this, if we say this, if we see this, then that will bring happiness. That will bring contentment. That will bring peace. That will give me power. But it doesn't work. The the psalmist speaks the truth in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. When, When you sin, does it ever work out the way you planned? Does lust ever increase your happiness? Does anger give you greater power? Oh, there may be an illusion of happiness or power, but the supposed blessings that we sought from other gods proved to be nothing but the source of misery and sorrow. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. In those moments of temptation, when sin rears its ugly head, ask yourself quickly, what lie am I believing? In order for temptation to be attractive, you must believe a lie. Because if you're believing the truth, the temptation wouldn't be attractive. And so David urges you, remember your inheritance. The false gods promise all sorts of blessings and benefits. And, and David says, I, the, the drink, their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I'm not going to go down that path. I'm not going to follow them. I'm going to remember the inheritance of the Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Uh, the, the drink offerings of other gods in verse 4 are contrasted with the Lord himself being my cup. What does it mean to say the Lord is my cup? That might sound a little odd. Now, there's two other uses of the cup in the first book of the Psalter. Psalm 11, which we saw a few weeks ago, spoke of, Let let God rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So the idea of the cup is is very much sort of their lot, their, their situation. And then the other one is the most famous one in the Psalter. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Psalm 23. My cup. Which, for the wicked, their cup is judgment. For the righteous, my cup overflows. Actually, that's also referring to judgment. The image of the cup is always connected to judgment. But of course, it's always worth remembering God's judgment isn't always bad, wrong, evil. God also says, innocent, not guilty, righteous. So this is where, for the wicked, their cup is judgment. For the righteous, their cup is judgment. But what is the judgment? Not guilty. Now, uh, Jeremiah 25 has a potent usage of the imagery of the cup. Uh, Jeremiah is told by the Lord to take a cup. He says, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. And so Jeremiah takes this cup from the hand of the Lord and 
probably figuratively speaking, but goes to Jerusalem and uh, Egypt and the Philistines and Tyre all the way to Babylon. And sort of the point being every nation in the whole ancient world. And then God says, if they refuse to accept from your hand the cup to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. Remember, it starts at Jerusalem. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. And now David says that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. To say that the Lord is my cup is at once a terrifying statement and a comfort beyond description. Yahweh is my cup. The God who gives the cup of his wrath to the nations, they drink and fall and are destroyed. This God is my cup. And you start to realize what Jesus meant when he said, I have a cup that I must drink. As our Lord Jesus is the one who drinks the cup of wrath and drinks it down to the dregs. And then he tells his disciples, you will drink of the cup that I drink. (laughs) Oh, the Lord is my portion in my cup. This is not sounding very great. Terrifying? Yeah. But if I do not drink of him, then I cannot stand in the judgment. What happens when we come to the Lord's table? The cup of blessing that we bless is the very cup that our Lord Jesus drank. It's that, this is why we say, it's why Paul says, to eat and drink apart from faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is to eat and drink judgment. It is the cup of judgment. It's not a different cup. It's just that The only way you can drink this cup is if Jesus himself has been that once-for-all sacrifice that has taken upon himself the wrath and curse of God so that when we drink the cup, it becomes for us the cup of blessing. And since our Savior has drunk the cup of God's wrath, bearing our sin and guilt, therefore we may declare, the Lord is my cup. He is my portion. This is the language used of the portion of the priests in Nehemiah and Chronicles. The priests and Levites did not share in the inheritance of Israel. They were told that God himself says to them, I am your inheritance. I am your portion. You see, the Levites receive God himself as their portion, which this is part of what we are learning as we go through Leviticus in the Sunday evenings that that what it means for us to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, is that we become like the priests. We become those whose inheritance is God himself. He is my portion. He is my inheritance. And so with God as his portion, David delights in the beautiful inheritance that is his. Uh, Sure, you you could say, okay, Maybe David's kind of thinking about, ah, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. The kingdom of of Israel is a a beautiful kingdom. Uh, Yeah, but David's saying something far bigger than that. It's not just, it's not just, yeah, I got a nice piece of real estate. This This is a good inheritance. 
it's the Lord himself is my portion and cup. David clearly sees this is more than just, hey, I've got, I got a nice little kingdom here. It's God himself is my portion. He is my inheritance. And so he says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Now, in these next few verses, we're going to see how David takes uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and weaves this through all the parts of the person. Verse 7, he talks about the kidneys. Verse 8, my right hand. Verse 9, my heart, my glory, my flesh. Verse 10, my soul. My whole being, all the parts of me are now finding their satisfaction in God. Now, we're used to saying, oh, body and soul, or mind and emotion. So let's watch how David does this here. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. The nearness of God brings counsel, gives instruction. And in the night, he says, my heart instructs me. Um, If you put it more literally, my kidneys discipline me. What does that mean? My kidneys discipline me. I mean, some of you might be like, oh, that sounds like my gut, some gut trouble in the night. Well, in, in Hebrew, the word kidneys is the term that's used for the center of your emotions. The deep feelings come from our bowels. Eh, even in English, we talk about gut feelings. You know, something in my gut. And, and God tests, like in Psalm 7, God tests the heart and mind. Uh, literally, he tests the heart, uh, the, the kidneys and the heart, because in Hebrew, heart is the word that's used for the thinking and willing organ, and kidneys is the emotional center. Uh, it's just different languages, different words. But it's probably too cheerful to say simply that my kidneys instruct me, because the verb also means to discipline or to chasten. My kidneys are instructing me. This is a gut-wrenching sort of teaching. And if you look at Psalm 6, verse 1, you'll see the same verb when it says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So my kidneys are disciplining me. Because when the Lord is near, He disciplines those He loves. When I am centered on Him, my gut, my deepest emotions, discipline me in the night. Hmm. Ever had sleepless nights? There's two kinds of sleepless nights. One is where you lie awake, racked with pain, with guilt, with anger, with frustration, your mind flailing and troubled. The other is where you lie awake, where your kidneys are disciplining you, where your gut is drawing you near to God, where your inward parts are meditating on God's word. All the same things may be there in your mind, but now instructing you, teaching you, showing you, disciplining you in the way of Christ. There's no such thing as a fun, sleepless night. But there's a, all the world of difference between those frustrating nights where you can't sleep and your mind is going, spinning all over the place and those nights that are almost as refreshing as sleep where you're drawing near to God, drawing near to Him, where your gut where your kidneys are instructing you, disciplining you, training you to hold fast to God in the midst of the difficulties of life. And then verse 8 focuses on the daytime. 
I have set the Lord always before me. Uh, This has to do with your eyes, except obviously you're not literally looking at God. But the phrase before me has to do with that which is obviously right there in front of me. It's the same phrase used in Psalm 10 to refer to what the practical atheist cannot see. They don't set God before them. But now, David says, I have chosen by faith to see what they cannot see. I have set the Lord always before me, and because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. It's not just, oh, I believe he's there. No, no, he is at my right hand. And so I shall not be shaken. The right hand refers to strength. To be at the right hand is to be in the position of strength and power. Psalm 2 had spoken of the son of David as the only begotten son of God, as the one who has been enthroned. And Psalm 8 had said the son of David was given dominion over all things. Psalm 16 now connects this with the right hand. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father because he is sitting in the position of strength and power. And in my life, the Lord himself is at my right hand when he sits in the position of strength and power in my life. The reason why I cannot be shaken is because I am found in him. So think about this. Our our kidneys, our feelings, our emotions are disciplining us in the night. Our eyes are seeing by faith. My right hand is fortified, strengthened by his presence. And so my heart is glad. The heart is the center of thinking and willing. And this, it's been used a dozen times already in the first 15 Psalms. My heart is glad when I meditate on the inheritance that I have in God because I know that I belong to Him and He is faithful. And my whole being rejoices. Literally, my glory rejoices. My glory rejoices? Yeah, well, glory has to do with weightiness. So what does it mean for my weightiness to rejoice? The answer comes from the Psalms we've already looked at. Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. You, O Lord, are my glory, my honor, my weightiness, my reputation. It's you. Psalm 4. How long, O men, shall my glory be turned into shame? When I'm under attack, in distress, my glory is turned upside down. And in Psalm 8, God God made the Son of Man a little lower than God, crowned with glory and honor. My glory rejoices, my reputation, my honor, my weightiness rejoices because I know that my inheritance is God himself. And so my flesh, my body, dwells secure. Why? Why? Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The final part of me that David refers to is the deepest part of me, my soul. The soul is the deep innermost part of me. When God created Adam from the dust of the ground, he breathed the breath of life into him and Adam became a living soul. And we were made for, in the image of God to be in fellowship with him. And when our souls are centered on God himself, when we take refuge in the Lord, then our whole person, every part of us, is rightly ordered toward God and thus to our neighbors. And then notice what this does to us. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. Notice what has happened to my soul. My soul has now become your Holy One. 
your chassid, your godly one, your faithful one, the one who is characterized by steadfast love and faithfulness. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Well, this is what Psalm 16 now answers. Now, notice a couple weeks ago we, we saw that God created us to ask questions. Verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. Not, you make known to me all the answers to the questions I have. No, you make known to me the path of life. The way in which we walk. People sometimes say, Ah, when we get to heaven, we'll have all the answers. Why would we think that? We are finite creatures, and we'll never be anything other than finite creatures. Our God is an infinite God. We will never exhaust all there is to know about God. There will always be more to know. There will always be questions to ask. The difference between our present experience and our experience of glory is that in your presence there is fullness of joy. Now we have tastes of joy. We have glimmers of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now we have a taste of that pleasure. But why is the psalmist glad? Why does his glory rejoice? Why does his flesh dwell secure? Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16 shows us that the road to eternal life leads through death. Israel had to understand that the route to glory leads through suffering. David sees that Sheol, the grave, is in his future. He knows that he will die. But he prophesies that God will not abandon his soul to Sheol or allow his Holy One to see corruption. And Peter understands what this means. Because when Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, Peter realizes that's what David was talking about. After all, what day is this? This was Pentecost. The Feast of first fruits, as Israel is bringing a portion for the priests and the Levites. And now the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. The first fruits of the kingdom of God come upon the people of God. And Peter realizes, oh, Psalm 16 was all about Jesus. Because David, as he puts it, the patriarch David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And that's what God has done in Jesus. Jesus has walked the path of life, as he has been made full of gladness in the presence of his Father, so that now you and I may share in his life, in his joy, that as we share of his cup, we share of his portion, we share in his inheritance. How do we do that? By his spirit. The spirit who is the first fruits, the, the promise of the full inheritance. And Israel was called to sing this eschatologically. They were called to sing of this future glory in the present because they didn't yet see all of this. David died and his body rotted in the grave. It was going to be a thousand years before Psalm 16 came to pass. And yeah, 
it may take a thousand more years before the final fulfillment of all this comes to pass. We don't know when our Lord will return. But our Lord has begun the work because he now sits at the right hand of the Father. And we who live in the last days, who have beheld the beginning of the age to come in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we must keep our hearts and minds fixed on the glory that will be revealed in the revelation of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. As you meditate on the death of Christ and his suffering for us, as you meditate upon his resurrection and his glory at the right hand of the Father, you need to see that this is what God has promised and this is what God is continuing so that, yes, right now we don't have fullness of joy. We have the beginning of fullness of joy. We don't have pleasures forevermore. We will, and we have the beginning of that in Jesus. But this is, we have the foretaste of heaven in the presence of Christ by his spirit because the spirit is the down payment of that inheritance. Jesus is beginning this in his church and he continues to do this to the ends of the earth. So let's pray and ask him to keep doing it. Father, help us because we too often forget and we run after other gods and we run straight into the sorrows that come from that. Lord, forgive us. And we, we bless you because you have, you have done that which we could not have done for ourselves. You have sent your Son who came in our flesh and who bore in his own body the wrath and curse that we deserve so that we might have in him our portion and our cup because we have a beautiful inheritance in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Help us, Lord, to be content with Jesus because we have no good apart from you. So may we find our delight in Jesus and in your people, that together we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior. For we pray in his name. Amen.